My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Emily Spanton, Taylor Telford, and Rose McCormick. In Niagara Falls, Ontario, hidden away by a golf club and residential area to the north, an industrial and commercial area to the east, and an L-shaped bend in the Welland River to the west and south, is a 484-acre natural area called Thundering Waters Forest that even many nearby residents aren't aware of. It is a rare remnant of the kinds of ecosystems that once covered much of this part of the province. In this case, a mix of savanna plains and old-growth forest. Much of it is forested wetland, including 220 acres that are designated as significant wetlands by the province of Ontario. A company called GR Can Investment Group wants to develop this land, ironically under the name Paradise. At the moment, the provincially designated portion cannot be developed, but the company hopes to use the remainder to build high-end luxury housing and all of the associated infrastructure for 10,000 people. The plan has met with some spirited opposition, however, much of it under the banner of a campaign called Save Thundering Waters Forest. Consultation and discussion of related issues began to happen via a number of local governmental bodies over the course of 2016. At various points, the Niagara Region, the City of Niagara Falls, and the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority, or NPCA, have all been involved, and from the beginning, concerned citizens took every opportunity to participate. The issue initially came to a head when a secondary plan that would have allowed the development to proceed came up for a vote in August 2016. Citizens opposed to the development lobbied hard in the lead-up and then filled the council chamber that night, and they were successful in pushing enough councillors to express uncertainty about the proposal that the vote was postponed. Over a year later, and the vote has still not been held. Nominally, the process is waiting for additional studies to be completed about various aspects of the development, but those residents who are paying close attention to the issue say that it is very unclear what's actually going on. They say that even their allies on city council have been unable to get answers about the process, and they have grave concerns about what this might mean down the road for efforts to protect the wetland. Emily Spanton, Taylor Telford, Rose McCormick, and the rest of the members of Save Thundering Waters Forest argue that developing the portion of the site that is not currently protected by the province would ultimately destroy the viability of the entire ecosystem, even without developing the rest. And they fear that, either way, approval would lead to a push from the developer to remove the provincial protection from the balance of the land. The opponents even make it clear that they're not against development per se. Niagara has many brownfield sites, meaning urban sites that have previously been developed but are not currently in use, that they would love to see GRCAN investment redevelop. In the year since the vote on the secondary plan was postponed, Save Thundering Waters Forest has not been idle. They've been doing all sorts of public education around the issue, have launched two separate online petitions, 
and in August of 2017 took the step of doing a week-long occupation of the site to raise the profile of the issue. Seven of them stayed for the duration, including Emily, Taylor, and Rose. Media coverage and a strategically placed banner drew passers-by to the site, and they offered tours, as well as generous amounts of information, to illustrate exactly what's at stake if the wetlands are turned into high-price housing. For the moment, the group is focused on building their case against the development, on continuing their public education efforts, and on keeping a close eye on the evolution of the public process with a readiness to intervene whenever necessary. And they've not ruled out resuming their occupation of the site, if that's what it takes. Emily, Taylor, and Rose speak with me about Thundering Waters Forest, about the dangers posed by the quote-unquote paradise development proposal, and about the work they've been doing to stop it. We spoke, by Skype, from Niagara Falls. My name is Rose McCormick. I became involved in this movement in December of 2015, and I've worked in various capacities, organizing letter-writing campaigns or protesting in front of various government buildings or housing educational events. And then I was also one of the campers at the Synod. I'm a graduate of sociology from Brock University, and I'm also an environmentalist. My name is Taylor Telford. I got involved with this about 18 months ago in one capacity or another. I was part of one of the campers at the sit-in that took place in the middle of August this past year. I am an environmentalist and a scholar, I guess. And I am Emily Stanton. I became involved in this in August 2016, so uh, just over a year ago. A neighbor of mine asked me if I wanted to take down the government. I didn't ask which one. I just said yes. And the rest is history. The more I've learned about this issue, the more I have given of my life, I guess. And really, I've allowed this to take over in my letter writing, my petition writing, organizing. I was a member of the sit-in. It's really become an issue that is so pivotal to the region and where the region is going that it's hard to not be a part of. The campaign, I think, first and foremost, is to stop the paradise development of Thundering Waters Forest and gain unequivocal, complete, and unending protection of this 484 acres. Describe the land in question for listeners. It's a wetland, <laughs> and it's not just a wetland. There are parts of it that are invernal pools, so you've got water this summer, because we've had such a wet spring, there are quite a few ponds that reflect the trees. It's actually beyond beautiful. Because it's just short of 500 acres, you're able to see for miles and miles around. There's also a savanna region, which is tall grasses, as well as other flowers. We recently found a flower that is endangered and have notified the MNFR. Uh, and that is the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. Of the state discovery. It's a habitat for many different species of pollinators, of bats. These are creatures that feed on insects that we are having issues with. Until you actually look back and look at the larger issue, you don't realize how much effect each one of these individual things has on this ecosystem and on our life in the Niagara region, on our flood prevention, on our water quality, on our air quality. These are larger issues that are not being heard in the way they should be or addressed. One of the functions of the vernal pool is that they act as carbon sinks through the sequestration process. They can be a tool to navigate flooding in the area. 
Uh, we see them as something that is like not only aesthetically pleasing, and obviously there's inherent value in our forests and in our species that live there, but it's actually something that may be very crucial to the people who live in the region for years to come on the brink of climate change. And what's the developer proposing? What's being proposed is a mega development called Paradise, comprised of upwards of 10,000 homes. Essentially, it would have the function of being sort of a class-segregated, gated community. And a number of restaurants, uh, well-known restaurant chains, shopping complex, possibly a school, even though there's no information. And a home for elderly people as well. So geriatric center that no one else in Niagara Falls could utilize, only the people who live within this community. I've also heard talks of having some sort of community center, some sort of ice rink, maybe a rose garden. On their website, they have a slideshow basically illustrating some of their plans. Largely, though, I think it is being promoted as retail and commercial. Their goal is to physically build around the wetlands that have been deemed provincially significant because it would be illegal for them to develop physically on those wetlands. But what we wanted to express fully and wholeheartedly is that these are symbiotic systems. And when you remove the ability for animals to go from wetland to wetland or place to place, you run the risk of creating a bunch of inbreeding in the species. You are weakening the ecosystem as a whole because it relies on a whole system. How did the Save Thundering Waters Forest campaign get started? In 2015, the MNRF produced a paper titled Wetlands in Ontario, a discussion paper in which the idea of biodiversity offsetting was first brought to the table. And the NPCA, the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority, is legislated by provincial policy as encapsulated within the MNRF. So this discussion paper was sent to the NPCA, including the idea of biodiversity offsetting. And and biodiversity offsetting, as it was proposed by the province, is the idea of no net loss at a one-to-one ratio. So it's the idea that if you do have to, in, in any circumstance, develop upon a wetland, you can build another one in another location. And the NPCA received this and they said, okay, cool, sounds great, but we'll do a a net gain approach in which we'll offset one and build three. So on paper, it sounds great. Like, oh, you're getting, you know, three for one, you're getting three times as much nature. But in the paper is also the hierarchy of development and it's four steps. When you're looking at sort of developing upon a space that has wetlanded area and the first step of those four is avoidance. The second is mitigation. The third is, I forget the exact term because we've all read so much policy, is kind of like soften the blow or try to move around it. And then the fourth is offset. The fourth step in the hierarchy, the one that you're supposed to do last, is offsetting. But it sort of feels as though that hierarchy, which is actually proposed by the province that is legislating this conservation authority, this regional governmental body, is being ignored. I'm not sure the person who had first sent out an email, but there was an email and some discussion on Facebook kind of questioning or criticizing this idea that you could offset green space through practicing biodiversity offsetting. And the NPCA on the 27th of January in 2016 housed a public meeting in which they could get the public's input on biodiversity offsetting. And it was basically a resoundingly sort of negative public opinion around it. The idea was debated for a few months. And eventually the region did vote to sort of scrap the idea of biodiversity offsetting, but that's where it started. And that idea of offsetting sort of unearthed other problems that existed within the NPCA. From there, things went to public presence at 
the region, the Niagara Regional Council, and then also heavy public presence at Niagara Falls City Council meetings because by virtue of being in Niagara Falls, the development is handled by the City Council of Niagara Falls. There were a multitude of public presentations questioning the grounds that the development exists on, presentations from some from a few scientists saying you can't offset. There's different types of wetlands. You couldn't offset an old-growth forest swamp, which is what we have at Thundering Waters. And the rallying point around this development up until August of 2016 was the secondary plan in the development. And the secondary plan was largely comprised of an environmental impact study written by Dugan and Associates, who were hired by GR Investments, the company that purchased Thundering Waters in 2015. It was sort of a species list, and it was supposed to be a comprehensive sort of understanding of the space and the species that live there and the sorts of trees and the general age of the forest and what human presence would do to it. But the EIS, the Environmental Impact Study, was largely criticized as being inadequate. And that was part of the public rallying around the idea that the secondary plan should be voted down. So on August 23rd of 2016, Niagara Falls City Council was set to vote on the secondary plan, which in addition to the EIS comprised some social impact studies, getting a sense of what the development would do to local business, what it would do to animal populations, what sort of infrastructure in terms of roads and lights and electricity would have to be put into place. And on August 23rd, I'm very proud to say that we packed the council with hundreds of people. The chambers were completely full and the city council actually didn't vote upon the secondary plan because of that. And also because there were numerous councillors who thanks to sort of our dissemination of information, had stated that they didn't feel as though they had enough information to vote upon this in good conscience. And it, to this day, still has not been voted upon. A meeting for certain parts of the plan, as an example, the infrastructure, the transit plan, things like that, they are still waiting for that. So council officially is waiting for all those components to be together before they have this public meeting. But it's something we've all been talking about for over a year, and we're not getting straight answers on. We're not understanding what's going on in the political process. Niagara Falls Council themselves have come out publicly, some of the council people, saying that they do not know what's going on. And that's just not, I don't know, to me that's not Canadian democracy, where our own council people are asking questions about a development and an economic opportunity within their constituency, their municipality and they're not getting answers from their mayor, that to me screams that there's improprieties. If there's not, why aren't you answering our questions? I just, that's, I think our question is just answer our questions, make this a transparent process and allow public input as well as your council people's input. So after the vote on the secondary plan was postponed last August, but before you did the sit-in, what sorts of things was the campaign doing to draw attention to the issue? One of the people that we work alongside named Owen, we call him our resident scientist. He gave a number of public information sessions sort of centered around the biodiversity and the ecology of this space, of this 484 acres, because he does hold a university degree in biodiversity. Many of us held a three-day long information session at a local cafe that was comprised of a couple different art pieces that spoke to these sorts of issues. We disseminated some information in terms of general terms. I think that one of the hurdles to raising the public consciousness about this has been just the, the sheer magnitude of acronyms, NPCA, PSW, MNRF. 
because there's such an expensive yeah. amount of information here, we're trying to give people that we talk to about this issue the tools necessary to understand all of the political jargon and all of the research and the things that they talk about and rather the news or elsewhere. Yeah, and to empower themselves. As well as we hold a lot of information, some that like we feel that maybe we can't talk about because we're a little bit afraid of being sued. <laughs> but we're free to talk about it with everyday citizens that live in Niagara just to discuss like the absolute I'm going to say, like, insanity of this whole thing. A couple of our good friends have crafted a really excellent website that has some webisodes, if you will, some little clips that kind of interview different citizens and people involved with this movement and just some general info on the ecology and also, like, a history of the news articles for this issue, which is really useful. That's definitely a tool that we send out to people. Paradiseprojectfilm.com. We also have a very, very active Facebook page, and it's called Just Save Thundering Waters. There you can find various petitions as well as current news information on the subject. What has the public conversation been like around this issue? I've never talked to anyone who is positive about a development there other than Mayor Deodati. Not one citizen came forward and complained about our sit-in. Not one person came to us and said, what are you doing? Who didn't stop and hear that this land that they were about to walk on or ATV on or however they were going to recreationally use was about to be developed. They were shocked that they had no knowledge that this was going on. We feel there is a large lack of public perception and that's part of the sit-in was about getting the knowledge out there and educating the public, showing the people the land, how to properly utilize it so that you're not impeaching on it and doing peril to it in the process of actually visiting it and how to, I I don't know, protect it. It's absolutely mind boggling to me that people do not know that neighbors, people who own land right next to property don't know that it's about to be developed. They think it's safe because of provincial legislation. Are there other groups in the community that have expressed concern with or opposition to the Paradise Development Proposal? Trout Unlimited, as well as Welland River Keepers, came out. Several have come out, as well as several MPPs, regional politicians, local politicians. People have come out, or when we were at the sit-in, they did come out and learn about these issues and have supported us. This is sacred land to Indigenous people. The Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force has written to Prime Minister Trudeau about this specific piece of land. But unfortunately, most of the fight has been silent. We have citizens being sued over questioning the MPCA and their policies. So it kind of makes for an atmosphere where people don't want to write letters, don't want to be drawn out. We live in a region where the number one employer is the region. So most people here, their livelihood depends on our politicians not somehow finding a way to fire them. And we're seeing that within different organizations. That's why OPSU, for example, has backed us. They see the same kind of thing and have a huge issue with the MPCA and have put out several papers to that end. So I understand the need to be careful in talking about this, but what else can you say about the situation where a resident is being sued? What I can say is that I think the cornerstone of our democracy is not only our right, but our responsibility to speak out against our politicians and to ask questions. The fact that a citizen is being sued is absolutely mind-boggling. 
as to the specific lawsuit. It's not my lawsuit. It's not my place to comment on it. Tell me more about the sit-in or occupation of the site that you engaged in last month. We've been exercising, you know, the completely legal way of... The bureaucracy. We've followed the bureaucracy. We try to communicate with politicians. We try to create a dialogue in the community. And at every turn, we were shut down. And we were not taken seriously at all. And it was kind of always in our back pocket that this is something that we could do. And once we saw that, like, no amount of letter writing or conversations with politicians is going to change their minds in any capacity, we said that this is something that we wanted to do. Because we know that it would raise more awareness, and that's what we need. We need a greater number of local citizens to speak out against this so they don't have the option to not listen anymore. We saw the sit-in as a really powerful tool to gain a more public profile or to gain a public platform and to garner some sort of media attention, which, and we're really, really excited about, uh, has been working. So I, I believe that our goal was met in terms of raising public awareness via physically occupying the space. There were seven of us who stayed over every night. We made ourselves available because people would just walk right into the camp. We had a large banner with some signs, as well as people knew we were there if they were reading the newspaper. And we just welcomed people from the base community to just like have an open discussion about this issue. We found that some people didn't know about the development. That was a big one, as well as like some people didn't even know that that forest was there. And I think maybe that was some of our politicians' upper hand because it's not a public space. It's just a forest. It's, it's not a national park or anything like that. And besides that, we fed people and tried to stay positive. Whilst spending time there, we focused a lot on education. And we had drafted a 115-page media pamphlet that had the legend of acronyms that come up often in this discussion and some general info about the development, general info about the development agency that had purchased the land in 2015, general information about what the development would be comprised of, and information about the wetlands and the savanna area and the forest and the ecological sensitivity, and some info about what, in a human sense, what wetlands do provide in terms of cleaning groundwater and mitigating flooding and cleaning air and saving off climate change. So it was a really deeply educational space. We did do tours through the wetlands. We wanted to stress the fact that this is a very, very delicate ecosystem. So we took the same path every time. We tried as much as we could not to disturb any part of the environment there. And people were really, really amazed to see how beautiful it was. Everybody we took, I think, pretty much hadn't seen it before. While we were there, the owners, Jarkan, did reach out to us several times about meeting, and we have not heard from them since we left. And I wanted to make it clear that if our politicians and the owner are going to continue to have these backroom deals where we feel like suddenly there is an actual development happening, we're not opposed to going back. And we were ready to be arrested the first time, and that hasn't changed. So just because we left peacefully doesn't mean that we're just done with this issue. It's still something we're watching. It's still something we're engaging in. It's still something we're hoping can be resolved through the bureaucracy. But we are watching. And I understand you also have a petition going? We have two petitions. One is specifically about Thundering Waters Forest and saving it. It is a wetland. There are so many provincial and federal acts that cover this space. Why is it not being protected? And where is their conservation authority in this? They have yet to actually have a say in either way. 
it's at change.org. You can just search Thundering Waters. We also have one more petition, just calling for an audit of the NPCA, also available on change.org. Summarize for listeners what your demands are in the campaign as a whole. We are asking that the entire forest be saved, as is a very small portion of the Carolinian forest in this region. Literally 10% is left. 10%. Why are we not protecting this in an era when we've got flooding, we've got climate change, we've got water quality issues? Like five Um, hurricanes. Yeah, when we'd like to breathe, we'd like trees. These are real issues, and I'm really not understanding why they're not being protected. It's shocking to me that this is actually being allowed to happen in Canada. I thought we had more protection than this, and it's sad that our government officials aren't actually enforcing those protections. It's not enough for us to just have GR Investments back off of the development. That's not necessarily what we want. We want GR Investments to develop in Niagara, we just want them to do it on a brownfield. Most importantly, we want this area to be protected for future generations, maybe centuries, hopefully because it's not going to stop another corporation coming in and just using it for something else. And we need to stress the fact that, like, they're saying they're going to develop on some of the areas. We need to stress the point that they cannot develop on any of it. We sort of toyed with the idea of various levels of government purchasing the 484 acres because done our own research on government expropriation of land. If it's seen to be in the public good, the government of Canada, as well as the government of Ontario, has the right to do that. So ideally, I I think in in some sense, we would want to put pressure on the province. And then if the province doesn't come through, we want to put pressure on the federal government to purchase this land, to make a deal with GR Investments, turn it into park, turn it into a conservation area, have it protected, have it be made into public land in some sense, as opposed to private property. Because Taylor is completely correct. If GR Investments just sells this land back to Mountain View Homes, who is the other real estate development agency that they had purchased it from, who's to say that Mountain View Homes won't then develop upon it? So we want the private property made into public property. What's going to be coming up for Save Thundering Waters Forest in the next little while? Well, right now, the MPCA is in the process of its strategic plan for the next four years. So we are waiting to see the outcomes of that and how they respond to the sit-in and whether or not they're going to enforce provincial policies on wetlands or whether or not they're going to allow developers to run Niagara and our environmental systems. We also are waiting to see the outcome of several freedom of information inquiries. We are waiting to hear as to whether or not we're going to be allowed to speak at various councils. We are continuing with our quest with the petition. We are waiting to hear whether or not GR Canada still wants to meet with us now that we've left. There are a lot of balls in the air, and we're watching every single one, and we're ready to act as they land, and we're continuing our plans to make sure that this wetlands is protected, no matter what means, nonviolent means. You have been listening to my interview with Emily Spanton, Taylor Telford, and Rose McCormick of Save Thundering Waters Forest. To learn more about the struggle they're involved in, search for Save Thundering Waters Forest on Facebook, or go to paradiseprojectfilm.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.